I remember, like, it was the first time that I formulated to myself the thought, if someone is being very confident but very vague, don't get involved. (laughs) (laughs) Good advice. And hello. Welcome back to Black Box Poetry. I'm Anastasia Nicolas, and I'm joined here today by my two comrades. Can you guys say hey? I'm Sean. I uh, study Victorian poetry and other literature at Rutgers University, and I live in Philadelphia. Hi, I'm Isaac. I am a translator of Russian-Ukrainian and a poet. Um, And I'm Anastasia from Rochester, New York, living in Rochester, New York at the moment. I study 20th century poetry at the University of Rochester, and I'm the poetry editor at Open Letter Books. So I think today we're talking about curse poems. Yeah. And I I feel like there's two features of curse poems that seem especially uh, interesting just in general. One is that like love poems, they have an addressee, but the addressee is almost never the person who's actually reading the poem. So there's a certain weird kind of throne voice quality to it. But the other one that I think fits with that in an interesting way is that they're also completely steeped in magical thinking. So when you're writing a poem that claims to be cursing someone, the more that the poem claims to do, the more implausible it is that it's doing what it's what it says it's doing with words alone. And you can create a lot of different effects with that. You can have a poem that is essentially an insult and that, you know, is performing the the language in a pretty straightforward way. But there are also poems that really lavish lots of improbable threats on their object of scorn and really lean into the kind of absurd magical quality of it. So that'll be, I think, an interesting place to play around in. There's actually a historical element to that that goes back to the Greek tradition that you can learn about if you read Eros the Bittersweet by Anne Carson, which is not just the best book ever, but the best artifact ever made by a conscious being, where she writes about how poetry is associated with written language, which is private, as opposed to speech, which is public language. So there's a certain indecent, secret, perverse intimacy that you can always attribute to written language in the Greek context, especially because they would write out curses that they believed had empirical power to hurt people and then hide those texts. So it's drawing from a deep well. I think another element you could go to for what's unique about curse poems is even though they're often about hatred, they're often an exercise in empathy because in order to torture someone, you have to know what would hurt them. Okay. So throne voice, magical thinking, the kind of like sense of some sort of efficacy or power or agency in a poem, right? These are all kind of like some data points that we're kind of working with. Does that sound about right? I think we can start from there. Cool. So, All right, what do we have first? I've brought one of the classic examples as our starting point. This is a French curse poem by Henri Michaud, whose name I'm surely mispronouncing, called I Am Rowing, a Hex Poem. I have cursed your forehead, your belly, your life. I have cursed the streets your steps plod through, the things your hands touched. I have cursed the inside of your dreams. I have placed a puddle in your eye so that you can't see anymore, an insect in your ear so that you can't hear anymore, a sponge in your brain so that you can't understand anymore. I have frozen you in the soul of your body, iced you in the depths of your life. The air you breathe suffocates you. The air you breathe has the air of a cellar, is an air that has already been exhaled, been puffed out by hyenas. The dung of this air is something no one can breathe. Your skin is damp all over. Your skin sweats out waters of great fear. Your armpits reek far and wide of the crypt. Animals drop dead as you pass. Dogs howl at night, their heads raised towards your house. You can't run away. You can't muster the strength of an ant to the tip of your feet. Your fatigue makes a lead stump in your body. Your fatigue is a long caravan. Your fatigue stretches out to the country of Nan. Your fatigue is inexpressible. Your mouth bites you. 
Your nails scratch you. No longer yours, your wife. No longer yours, your brother. The sole of his foot bitten by an angry snake. Someone has slobbered on your descendants. Someone has drooled in the mouth of your laughing little girl. Someone has walked by slobbering all over the face of your domain. The world moves away from you. I am rowing. I am rowing. I am rowing against your life. I am rowing. I split into countless rowers to row more strongly against you. You fall into blurriness. You are out of breath. You get tired before the slightest effort. I row. I row. I row. You go off drunk tied to the tail of a mule, drunkenness like a huge umbrella that darkens the sky and assembles the flies. Dizzy drunkenness of the semicircular canals, unnoticed beginnings of hemiplegia, drunkenness no longer leaves you, lays you out to the left, lays you out to the right, lays you out on the stony ground of the path. I row, I row, I am rowing against your days. You enter the house of suffering. I row, I row. On a black blindfold, your life is unfolding. On the great white eye of a one-eyed horse, your future is unrolling. I am rowing. <laughs> oh, man. I haven't read that since I was, I think, 19, and still I remember someone has slobbered on <laughs> <their> descendants. <laughs> That's, like, weirdly similar to your grandchildren will be communists, but it's, like, <laughs> more, more powerful. <laughs> it's a lot less complicated, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah there's something really visceral about that whole stanza so i've never read this poem <laughs> oh man asia isn't it isn't it isn't it a lot isn't it a lot jesus christ yeah someone has drooled in the mouth of your laughing little girl <laughs> it's a lot <laughs> and i'm not gonna lie i'm never gonna think about those boats in central park the same way ever again <laughs> mm, nice <laughs> Especially like on a Saturday afternoon when it just like there's just like a fleet of them just like they've just like multiplied into a swarm of like horror. I'm like never gonna think about it the same way ever again. Oh god, it is it does to it does to robots what Apocalypse Now does to helicopters. <laughs> and the way it does that gets to your point about magical thinking, because in order to get you to buy into its magical thinking a poem has to use language that feels powerful mm -hmm. it has to use language that puts you in the headspace where you believe that thought or speech can affect empirical reality mm -hmm. and the incantatory quality of this and the power of this language managed to do that to the reader i think yeah it also is interesting that there is a sort of a transition from the beginning of the poem to the part where it starts talking about rowing that runs through a description of the body of the person who's being cursed, which I think is in some ways, it, it's both evocative of your point about empathy and also relates to this, the, the comment you just made that to really stick the magical thinking, you have to uh, have something incredibly evocative or you know suggestive. So the fact that it begins with its description of fatigue, which is so interesting because it's difficult to describe fatigue as an experience. It isn't just to say that you're tired. So to say your fatigue makes a lead stump in your body, your fatigue is a long caravan, your fatigue stretches out to the country of non, your fatigue is inexpressible, is a really interesting way of insinuating, for the poem to insinuate itself into the, the person that it's addressing. To go along with your point, what, to trace that beginning part before we get to the incantatory moment, right? Because it actually, the I am rowing is quite a few stanzas down. So what we're moving through mm -hmm. the parts of the body that are kind of being cursed, I'm really struck by the fact that it kind of, it opens with the point where you're, I've cursed your forehead, your belly, your life, and it's like a little bit vague or like doesn't give you a ton until you get the I have placed the pedal in your eye so you cannot see anymore. That gives you something very like, very specific to kind of work with. Then we get something that's a little bit more magical feeling. I have frozen you in the soul of your body, right? And that actually, that's that's not a thing that people can do, right? That's an actual magical yeah. moment. And then we get really visceral 
in the next like two stanzas after that, three stanzas after that, it's actually two stanzas after that because the animals drop dead as you pass still feels like that's borrowing like from like biblical kind of magic, that kind of like very clear like magical tradition until we get to the visceral. And at that point, once we get to the viscera, that's not magical anymore. That's just visceral. Um, but kind of borrowing from that magical tradition, the visceral part kind of becomes tinged with that like, oh, okay, this is what happens when when I start thinking. Um, it's interesting, the feedback between something that doesn't exist to something that really could happen, that feedback loop is really interesting and that interplay is really cool here. I think you're very right to zoom us in on the soul of your body line. I think that's really a touchstone moment in this poem. And I think it has to do with abstraction as a curse. I could connect it, I think, to the idea of your fatigue is a long caravan that's uh, externalizing this fatigue that ought to be, as you said a moment ago, visceral. It ought to be very much an internal experience, but it's placing it on a screen. It's placing it like a projection that's external to the body itself like we have further on with the image of the horse's eye at the end of the poem. There's this gesture of externalizing an experience. I think the same could be said of the the lead stump in your body. To me, the in there is not very literal. I'm not picturing this lead stump physically inside anybody's body. I'm picturing that as your, your body has... Uh, more abstractly resembles this lead stump. Your your fatigue more abstractly resembles it. Mm-hmm. So what that sends me to is almost in the Terence Hayes poem we looked at in the Sonnets episode, the gesture of externalizing somebody's psyche, putting somebody's psyche on rails and making them run through an externalized experience as a way of torturing them is very much at play here. Yeah, that that seems right. And it also seems to fit with this. I mean, there's kind of two dynamics that in some ways are very different, but I think they work for similar reasons. One is what I was trying to get at earlier of the sense that early on, it keeps referencing aspects of private experience that are sort of always in the background. And because of that, we don't really have a way of describing them. Like not just the fatigue, but also the air you breathe suffocates you. The air you breathe has the air of a cellar. Uh, is an air that has already been exhaled, been puffed out by hyenas. That's in some sense kind of literally true. I mean, the not the cellar part, but the, you know, it's already been exhaled. Like all, you know, this is sort of like a famous thing that kids learn is that all the breaths you're breathing have been breathed before. And then on the other hand, it has this move of describing things that are so weirdly specific that it's hard to not imagine them. In a weird way, it sometimes reminds me of, um, are you familiar with early aughts internet sensation Wizard People Dear Reader? No, I'm so, not familiar with that. I What is that referencing? Really? did we make you so, watch this? The piano made of frozen Windex. That's exactly oh, what that was, so, Guys, that was during Poetry Retreat. I have no idea what happened. <laughs> so this is, I'll, I'll explain it for the pod. So someone took the first Harry Potter movie and having only seen it once, removed the audio and recorded like a new voiceover for it where they just narrate the movie. And one of the joys of it is all of the really ridiculous tangled mixed metaphors. So at some point the uh, narrator says her voice was like a piano made out of frozen necks. (laughs) And there's something about metaphors that are really stretched or strained in, you know, in some ways like, the outer limits of metaphor, like we were talking about in the last episode, that has a kind of weird effect on you where it's almost irresistible. You almost have to try and think like, wait, what? And I think in some ways that relates to this poem strategy of also describing things that are so low key, like just breathing or being tired that we don't really have much thoughts about them. It's sort of looking for cracks in your consciousness for things that you don't have any defenses around because you've either never thought them before or you've, you've felt them so often that you're kind of completely, you know, inured to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is this funny thing about curses, right? That curses often operate on the level of extremity, like apocalypse, but they all, but sometimes the most terrifying curses are the ones that operate on the level of the completely mundane. Right. And this very much captures that kind of like, fearful quality of the things you don't notice. So 
right when I'm not reading poems, I happen to indulge a lot in female driven fantasy novels. So in my most recent foray, there's this curse where the person doesn't have the ability to feel romantic love, which has like, we're not even going to talk about how shitty this novel was. But in any event, um, it has all these implications for how evil the person can be, right? And not and how the person can't even feel familial love, because the romantic love isn't there. So you don't have like the ways to like check against in any event. And there's a little Freud, Freud. <laughs> we should cut all of this. <laughs> but in any event, this is making me think about the way that this poem is talking about how if you can't really like if you're cursing these like kind of smaller levels, what what are the implications for cursing at these larger levels is really all I'm getting at. But I think that that's right, that there is like a conquest of mundanity that it's like I'm always going to be there to the extent that like even things that are yeah like in some ways completely banal are going to be sort of you know colonized or taken for granted yeah i think this is a very rewarding way of looking at the poem that i'm glad to have now i remember reading it as a bookish 19 year old and feeling with the certainty that only a bookish 19 year old can muster that only I felt tired and despondent sometimes. <laughs> a poet who also felt that way sometimes yeah. and was going to inflict it on the muggles. And I was like, go for it, man. Magneto did nothing wrong. But uh, this way of reading it is a lot more interesting, I think. I, I remember those days. and <laughs> So the one thing I want to think about before we move on from this is... The central metaphor, I am rowing against your life, is really weird because normally what you row against is a current. And in some ways that lends me, that leads me to think that there's a sort of, there's a sense in which the other person is like the water that, that keeps the boat afloat almost, which is something that we, we're sort of familiar with that idea from like action movies and sci-fi of like the villain and the hero have the moment where they say, we're not so different, you and I, you know, Magneto, as you were saying. But this is so subtle and it's such a product of the metaphor that in some ways it, um, I don't know, it's sort of like the entire poem is saturated by that sort of obsessive quality that we've been getting at earlier. I mean, in some ways it goes beyond empathy. It's like, I'm completely fixated on you. There's a extreme of intimacy implied. Like th there's an early moment where it says, I have cursed the inside of your dreams. The inside. Oh no. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's empathy, but it's an uh, in, indecent empathy. It's a perverse empathy. Yeah, maybe that's the way to think about a curse. It's like perverse empathy, right? Oh, let's move on to our next example. Okay. okay, cool. So I brought a poem by Amiri Baraka called A Poem Some People Will Have to Understand. Dull, unwashed windows of eyes and buildings of industry. What industry do I practice? A slick colored boy, 12 miles from his home. I practice no industry. I am no longer a credit to my race. I read a little, scratch against silence, slow spring afternoons. I had thought before, some years ago, that I'd come to the end of my life. Watercolor ego, without the preciseness a violent man could propose. But the wheel and the wheels won't let us alone. All the fantasy and justice and dry charcoal winters, all the pitifully intelligent citizens I've forced myself to love. We have awaited the coming of a natural phenomenon. Mystics and romantics, knowledgeable workers of the land, but none has come. Repeat, but none has come. Will the machine gunners please step forward? So my, my hypothesis is that on its own, the title could be read in a lot of different moods. Like it could be assertive, but could also be confiding. Um, someone understands this or pitiful, you know, like someone out there gets me or it could be desperate, like surely someone, please, someone under someone hear this. And then the last line of the poem, when it says, will the machine gunners please step forward is at some level trying to turn the title of the poem into a curse. But the drama of the poem is created by the tension between the aggressiveness of the last line and the desperation of everything that comes before it. Can we do the what is empirically happening bare bones paraphrase of this poem to start with? I think that means you and For me sure, have to yeah. do that, Isaac, because Sean has too much familiarity with it. So step yeah, back. I, th I think we need to 
get to grips with this. Okay. Dull, unwashed windows of eyes and buildings of industry. What industry do I practice? Well, we've got the weirdness of buildings of industry. That's not how one would typically describe an industrial building. That is being defossilized by what industry do I practice? Industry in the sense of the virtue of industry being industrious. Right. Well, and then that's kind of cast within the synecdoche that's giving us access to... That becomes the characterization of the boy that happens through the synecdoche of dull, unwashed eyes, adult unwashed windows of eyes, right? That the boy then becomes the building. When the, the building has banks of eyes, presumably, because it's a large industrial building, and then that narrows to this boy who has who has the two... Right. And uh, that's already deeply troubling to me as a reader. Right. Well, it's also interesting because it's a container for industry, right? That there are people inside the building who do industry, but the building itself practices no industry, hmm. which also has an interesting level when you're talking about the boy, right? I read a little. Ah, because what it's, yeah, what, what, it, what it's emphasizing about industry is the participation of the workers because it's defossilizing it with industry in the sense of industrious. Yeah, that's an important point. Right, right. That, that that didn't occur to me, but yeah, I think that I think that's key. But then, like ap- making those workers, the people who actually perform industry, are absent. It's just the container for industry. And then I practice no industry. Right. I am no longer a credit to my race. Yeah, I read a little scratch against silence, slow spring afternoons, and that's interesting because you kind of go from the reading to the writing, the way that writing operates silently but does have a qual- sound to it as your handwriting. That's interesting. Yeah. And that scratch against silence, slow spring afternoons, repeated S sounds should seem like easy mode sound play. They should seem like a cheap trick, but this is a hydrogen bomb. I know. S sounds always sound so, like, easy. I don't know, but it doesn't. This is this feels really, it feels special. It works there. Yeah. Well done. Well earned, Baraka. Well, it's the, the, the scratch is coming out of the silence that he's describing scratching against. It's so good. Uh, this, is, this is virtuosity. It's so good. I had thought some years before, you know, some years ago, that I'd come to the end of my life. Watercolor ego. Watercolor ego. Yeah, what? Well played, sir. That's a, that's a sentence. There's a period before that and a period after Yeah. So that sentence reads watercolor ego. That takes that takes some ego. <laughs> it does indeed. Watercolor so I think uh, watercolor ego is something that we're equipped to read afterwards, right? By these following lines. Without the preciseness. Yeah, I agree. Well it also refers uh, back in a very nice way that you're kind of suggesting not on the level of like aptitude and like interesting like poeticism it refers back to the scratch silence against the slow spring but in the level of media it also does as well because a pencil scratching or like a pen that scratches right watercolor won't scratch it's actually a brush it's not precise and it doesn't make sound so it does have a really interesting kind of like material marksmanship quality that's actually pretty interesting yeah, without the preciseness yeah and the dry charcoal winters actually has a very similar kind of quality to it about like what is it that makes us in there's something very interesting about the materiality and the way that materiality is kind of mapped onto this person's trying to figure out what his this like boy's attempts to figure out his purpose because all of these marksmanship qualities are about trying to like mark mark your presence in space right the way that language works or the way that like marking painting works or the way that charcoal works or the way that building a building works all of these are ways to assert presence assert function and the uh the the windows appearing on a surface like the wall of the building you could even read them in very much the same vein Mm -hmm. Sean, how do you read the second? It's not really even its own stanza, but it looks like its own stanza because of the way the line gets like kind of tabbed over at the I had thought. How do you read that section? You mean as a yeah, whole? Yeah, how do you read that progression or... through those lines? Yeah. yeah. So in some sense, 
because I know a little bit about Baraka's career, it's hard to not read it partially as as sort of announcing a shift in his career, which I think you could totally get without knowing the career stuff. You could sort of read it as like, it used to be that I was this kind of artist, and now I really want to be this other kind of artist. And because it's true that like, it's completely saturated with images of artistry, you know, like the, which, you know, the, the, the scratching, the watercolor, the charcoal. And I also read it as in some ways personalizing some of the sort of um, diction of the previous section. So like when you have back to back a slick colored boy 12 miles from his home, and then I am no longer a credit to my race. One of the things that the poem is definitely playing around with is the cliches around talking about race and there is a sort of like preemptiveness I think in the first stanza like an attempt to basically anticipate typical ways of talking about young black artists and then sort of grabbing them and you know um, shoving them aside or, or putting them behind so there's a move to something much more personal in the in the next stanza but I think you're right that it's very much building on the imagery of dull unwashed windows of eyes and buildings of industry, that kind of weird, you know, it's hard to describe it even. It's sort of like, as you were saying, this image of like, are we imagining every window on a factory is an eye or are we imagining a single person's eyes are like, you know, dirty windows. There's a certain sort of like slipperiness there. Well, it's it's jamming my capacity to empathize with this character or my, my, I, uh, just imagine you you would look to the eyes to empathize with a person, but that's what's being disrupted because I've got typically there's there's two eyes per subject to put it bluntly. There's two or yeah. fewer eyes per subject that I interact with, and here yeah. we have. I'm as a New Englander, I'm picturing one of those big mill buildings with the giant banks of windows. And mm-hmm. there's there's not enough subjectivity available in this one boy twelve miles from home to fill up that many eyes necessarily. Yeah. Well and I, I feel like that's also connected to like, but the wheel and the wheels won't let us alone, which I think is both like it's sort of drawing attention to the the metaphorical quality of, of the wheel is like it's the wheel of fortune, it's also the wheel of industry, mm-hmm. it's the sort of like relentlessness of life and time. And by having it both singular and plural, it's kind of playing on that fact. And in some ways, that's, I think, one of the things the poem is obsessed with is that it's this incredibly uh, vulnerably individual poem that also ends by claiming that it's going to call up all the machine gunners. So this idea of multiplying yourself, but also feeling totally isolated or totally singular seems to be really central to what the poem is doing. When the preciseness is associated with the violence that's coming further down, but it's the most abstract way of saying that possible without the preciseness a violent man could propose. It's, mm-hmm. the, it's the most sort of laboratory conditions way of describing that. And then at, at the end, it's no longer remotely abstract. And yet it's, it's, it's polite, would the machine gunners please step forward? Right. Oh yeah. There's there's still a bit of watercolor stuck to that, I think, just because it's <laughs> would the machine gunners please step forward? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well just that like machine gunners is the is the most literate way of describing these people. It's just, just across the board there's still watercolor streakily clinging to that, I think. So the passages we haven't talked about are um we reference it in passing but all the fantasy and justice and dry charcoal winters all the pitifully intelligent citizens i forced myself to love which seems related to the 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 next few lines where he says we have awaited the coming of a natural phenomenon mystics and romantics knowledgeable workers of the land but none has come repeat but none has come it seems like at one level this idea of knowledgeable workers of the land, mystics and romantics, knowledgeable workers of the land is very much an extension of the first part of the poem. You know, the sort of not practicing any mm-hmm. industry, scratching against the silence, but not in a, in a necessarily productive way. I think that's also because scratching is all, is often used as a, uh, or it's sometimes used as a metaphor in poems about agricultural labor 
And so the idea of like someone scratching against the silent slow spring afternoons could be an image of like a Georgic poem of like someone working a field, tilling the land, but that's not what's going on here. It also feels like at some level, the, the poem is confiding that the speaker is one of the mystics and romantics, one of the knowledgeable workers of the land. Like it's an apposition, like these things are being presented as rough equivalents of each other. But another way of reading it would be that the natural phenomenon that's been waited for is the coming of mystics and romantics, knowledgeable workers of the land. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's right to go back up to the beginning to kind of understand how this population, the, the we have waited, what this group is, this mystics, romantics, and knowledgeable workers of the land. I'm reading it the first way. My initial reading is reading it the first way you suggested, Sean, that we're supposed to think of all three of these as somehow like part of one group. And that is useful for Mm -hmm. me in the way of thinking that all three of these are not all three members of this group, all three of these, these like the mystics, the romantics and the knowledgeable workers of the land have no place in like a factory industry, urban kind of landscape, right? All three of these Mm -hmm. are kind of um, not valued. And all three of these kinds of knowledge are are useful, but not in a kind of like large urban environment, which is interesting since mystics and romantics, right, obviously don't have practical knowledge in the same way that knowledgeable workers of the land do. And there is a tension drawn to that, but that neither the like kind of practical knowledge nor the kind of mystic romantic knowledge have a place in this other landscape. So that's kind of an interesting thing. I do want to kind of, I'm tripping a little bit on the, all the pitiful, pitifully intelligent citizens I forced myself to love. That's very much an I, you situation, myself and the other. And then we very quickly get that we and that inclusivity. So I am a little bit interested in who is the intelligent citizens that were forced, were being forced to care for. Mm -hmm. is it is it is love to be read as a synonym for care for how are you reading it maybe i'm uh allowing this line to be swallowed too much by what follows but i read uh pitifully intelligent citizens i forced myself to love as uh people with whom the speaker has shared this consensus that there's going to be a natural phenomenon coming that will produce this idyll of the mystics and the knowledgeable workers of the land. So more like in the sense of I force myself to identify with because we share common beliefs. Yeah. And the the phrasing it as citizens pushes me in that direction as well of uh, being uh, fellow citizens of uh, being uh, existing within a first person plural with someone. Yeah, I think I was reading it more Whitmanian than that. Like, like I'm going to mm. contain and love all of these people as part of, like, very much in the care for sense in, in the service of this, like, larger politic dream or whatever. But I think I see mm-hmm. what you're saying, Isaac, that the contemporary way to do that would be to think more in terms of identification rather than, like, Whitman's, like, version of politics. <laughs> Well, in uh, uh, in either reading of that line, it would push us in a similar direction in terms of the overall logic of the poem. So I think both of those are viable. Yeah. And what they send me to is the fact that the ending uh, specifically invokes machine gunners. Mm-hmm. That this is uh, this is emphatically not an agrarian solution to the failure of the idyll to appear. Right. This is this is not mm-hmm. longbows. Yeah, this is this is machine guns being wielded by people whose profession is to wield machine guns. Right. Yeah. Well, the the other thing that strikes me in that regard is that the poem has this interesting stutter step at the end where it says, but none has come. And then you can't see this over the podcast, but it literally has in parentheses like a stage direction in italics, the word repeat. And then it repeats, but none has come, which is really fascinating because it in some ways voicing repeat has a sort of interesting theatrical quality when you're reading the poem. I first encountered this poem hearing someone else read it at, at uh, uh, the poetry reading group that we were in in college years and years and years ago. And if you say repeat, 
then that kind of like oddly sort of um, creates a certain kind of remove. But also if you're reading this in a book and you come upon the, the parent, the parenthetical repeat, and then you repeat it yourself, you're in some ways sort of like absorbed by the poem. Like the poem has now put you in the position of saying its words for it, mm-hmm. which is a really kind of fascinating move. Yeah, that is a really interesting move. So how does that interact with our framing of this as a curse poem being identified with the speaker? Does that make the reader the one who's pronouncing this curse? Well, I think that's the slipperiness of it, is that one way of thinking about it is that when it says a poem some people will have to understand, one way of understanding it would be to say, you get me, you have these feelings too, and you also are ready to call for violence. And in that sense, the curse is, in some sense, the violence, and you're being brought into this as kind of, you know, a fellow, like having fellow feeling or a fellow traveler. But another way of reading it would be that the, some people will have to understand it is in some sense a curse in its own way, that the poem is sort of foisting upon you or thrusting upon you the threat of violence that it's announcing. Mm -hmm. Which I think could also bring up like yet a third reading of the title, which would be a poem some people will have to understand as in, uh, maybe this isn't how you feel, but I'm telling you there are a lot of people who feel this way. And you will learn that the hard way, the hard way being the exposure to the effective language of the poem, to the powerful magical language of the poem. Yeah, or just to machine guns. Failing Um, that, machine guns. Right. It's interesting. I'm reading it uh, a little bit that we don't even necessarily need to involve the audience. I like that reading. But the way I was reading it was more of, um, I'm sorry to keep referencing, but uh, the way Write It works at the end of One Art, where it's kind of trying to convince himself, but none has come. Repeat it. None has come. Right. And that kind of sense of like justified, Mm -hmm. like resignation and justification, like because you have to recognize that none of this has come, even if you wanted it, fine. There's nothing left to do. Will the machine gunners please step Mm -hmm. forward? Right? That kind of like... hence the watercolor quality sticking to the the command to the machine, the the polite request for the machine gunners to step forward. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That that makes perfect sense. Which then also kind of feeds back to the title that not only am I trying to convince myself, I'm also trying to convince you. You just have to understand. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. It then kind of feels that same sort of pleading quality. Okay. Last boom. Yeah. All right. Poyak. Okay. So the poem I brought, I actually really struggled with this prompt when we came up with this one. And after thinking it over, the only the one that came immediately to mind was Plath pretty famous poem daddy so that's what i brought for us to think about today daddy you do not do you do not do any more black shoe in which i have lived like a foot for 30 years poor and white barely daring to breathe or achoo daddy i've had to kill you you died before i had time marble heavy a bag full of god Ghastly statue with one gray toe, big as a Frisco seal, and a head in the freakish Atlantic where it pours bean green over blue in the waters of beautiful Nosset. I used to pray to recover you, ach, do, in the German tongue, in the Polish town, scraped flat by the roller of wars, wars, wars. But the name of the town is common. My Polak friend says there's a dozen or two. So I never could tell where you put your foot down, your root. I never could talk to you, the tongue stuck in my jaw. It's stuck in a barbed wire snare. Ick, 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 ick. I could hardly speak. I thought every German was you. And the language obscene, an engine, an engine, chuffing me off like a Jew, a Jew to Dachau, Auschwitz, Belsen. I began to talk like a Jew. I think I may well be a Jew. The snows of the Tyrol, the clear beer of Vienna, 
are not very pure or true. With my gypsy ancestress and my weird luck and my Tarak pack, my Tarak pack, I may be a bit of a Jew. I have always been scared of you with your left waffa, your gobbledygoo, and your neat mustache, and your Aryan eye bright blue. Panzerman, Panzerman, oh you. Not God, but a swastika, so, so black no sky could squeak through. Every woman adores a fascist, the boot in the face, the brute, brute heart of a brute like you. You stand at the blackboard, Daddy, in the picture I have of you, a cleft in your chin instead of your foot, but no less a devil for that. No, not any less the black man who bit my pretty red heart in two. I was ten when they buried you. At twenty, I tried to die and get back, back, back to you. I thought even the bones would do, but they pulled me out of the sack. And they stuck me back together with glue. And then I knew what to do. I made a model of you. A man in black with a Mein Kampf look. And a look of the rack and the screw. And I said, I do. I do. So daddy, I'm finally through. The black telephone's off the route. The voices just can't worm through. If I've killed one man, I've killed two the vampire who said he was you and drank my blood for a year, seven years, if you want to know. Daddy, you can lie back now. There's a stake in your fat black heart and the villagers never liked you. They are dancing and stamping on you. They always knew it was you. Daddy, daddy, you bastard. I'm through. This is a wonderfully appropriate curse poem in the context of talking about curse poems because I think Plath is actively theorizing about how curses work while she's pronouncing her curse. I've never noticed that before when I've read it, but I agree, Sean, uh, Isaac, (laughs) that she's cursing and wondering how to curse at the same time. I think the real tentpole for that argument is uh, I made a model of you. Uh, that's that's literally a phrase that we've used in trying to theorize about poetry and especially about curse poetry and empathy appearing in a poem that's trying to enact that. I think also the tongue stuck in my jaw, the like fixation on not knowing what words to say to get the right point across. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that it might have been German, but I couldn't. I thought every German was you and the language was obscene that it's nope, that that might have been it. But that wasn't right. It that wasn't right either. Yeah. And the, the, the baby talk, the sort of deliberately inarticulate sound that uh, that produces the same effect of a, if, if a curse poem requires magical thinking where you believe that the speech act is an empirical act, not being able to speak is necessarily not being able to act. (laughs) There's also the, like, lack of a common language, which in some ways is, like, it's this weird feature where, like, obviously they share a common language, but the poem sort of posits a world in which she needs to speak to him in German. And in some ways, I think that has to do with this feeling that for the curse to really be effective, it has to go back to some sort of primordial state, which the poem attaches not only to like ethnicity in, in obvious ways, but also to like, uh, there's a, I've, I've never noticed how much like folk history mm-hmm. is in this. I've always loved that line in the last stanza and the villagers never liked you, but that also totally connects with the vampire stuff. This idea of like, you know, who are vampires? They're probably, you know, bad, uh, bad lords and, you know, barons and whatever that a lot of villagers hate for a long time and tell stories about how cruel and violent they are and how much, you know, bloodshed they cause. And then those stories over time become tales of, you know, vampirism. The poem feels like it's simultaneously imagining this kind of history of fear, you know, I've got my Tarok deck and my uh, gypsy ancestries and my weird luck, but it's also sort of making that real in the present. It's, you know, 
it's both putting it in the past and also imagining some kind of access in the present moment to this sort of magical history of, you know, curses and vampires and, you know, fortune telling and so on. Yeah, it actually hits a lot of different registers at once because it does have that kind of the kind of incantatory actual acting, like addressing the the cursey who's not there. But it also has this almost storytelling quality to give context as to why this curse is happening, as well as the third element of like, how do I do this? This kind of like interner like interiorized monologue. So it's like this like three part kind of process of putting the language together yeah yeah and they're totally related in that at some level it's positing well we're through with each other because these things have already happened but the 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 existence of the poem kind of belies that or it suggests that like well actually there's something else that can only be accomplished by you know reenacting this or expressing it there's a similar sort of tension i think emerging in the line where the speaker is stuck back together with glue Mm. because that to me suggests the model being built of the addressee Mm. in a sense by being in this universe the the speaker is also becoming model rather than an organic consciousness in the same way that the victim of the curse is And there is a kind of weird mix of organic and inorganic stuff. So, like, I love the line, the black telephone's off at the root. Yeah. Which is both, like, you know, telephones in some sense. I mean, like, I guess it's been, you know, like, decades upon decades have this sort of key role in relationships between parents and children. (laughs) (laughs) But also, there is, like... The the root is, you know, it's it's been referenced earlier and it's both like the root of lineage, but also like there's something phallic about the root. And then the idea of like the telephone being off of the root kind of feels like it's been disconnected, which then gives you this line, the voices just can't worm through. And in some ways that chimes all of those bells at once, the, the kind of like the visceral quality of it, the weird mix of like organic and inorganic, the incantatory a lot of that stuff suddenly feels like it's it's getting mixed together. To go back a second to what Isaac was kind of suggesting, I did want to think about the way that when the the person who speak when the like speaker becomes kind of the model for, right, that has an interesting relationship to having to justify why the curse is being is is being uttered because if you have to kind of model it you're kind of like, I feel like modeling is kind of often an act of providing an example in the process of needing to justify the need to do something. And justification really features pretty strongly here and also in the way that I'm interpreting the Baraka poem that we just did. I do find it really interesting when justification is necessary for a curse and when you're bold enough to curse without justification uh, and how that either legitimizes a curse or delegitimizes a curse in the same at the same time. That I'm really struck by reading these three poems together is the role of needing to justify and who has to justify their curse and who doesn't. So obviously, I guess maybe a daughter needs to justify, especially at this time, or like right, that a daughter needs to justify a curse on a father in a way that like two random people maybe don't need to justify in quite the same way. I don't know. I think that's a really good point. And it is striking how different the Michaud poem is from the other two. In some ways, part of why it feels like the most pure curse is because it, it's so gratuitous. There's no context mm-hmm. given for it. Where with this, we have a certain access point to what a curse poem is by the fact that so much of this poem and, and so much of the Baraka poem are taken up with other material giving like the context, but also the justification for the curse. I liked your point, Anastasia, about how it's not self-evident whether needing to justify a curse makes it a stronger or a weaker curse. I think that has something to do with the idea of abstraction that we've been kicking around. Because you could compare the, the first poem, anybody who has a body can empathize with what's being inflicted on the victim of the curse. Mm-hmm. And that makes it very abstract. 
but then you have the the second poem that has specificity that has to exist in a social context and is therefore less abstract but the poem itself is concerned with how abstraction is is applied to individuals in that social context and now we Mm -hmm. have a third poem that happens within a specific interpersonal context rather than a social one so there are sort of different levels of abstraction being applied to personhood in in all these curse poems and that seems to be a spectrum they could be plotted on mm-hmm. yeah no that's a really good point about how curse how a curse makes you really think about the relationship between the i and the you for lack of a better right model right the the speaker and the addressee yeah. in a way that the magnitude of scale is just like a really interesting way to kind of like think about how these poems operate and how poems operate more generally, who's kind of at stake. In a weird way, it's almost as though this is, you know, building on the, the magnitude of scale thought there's a weird way in which like in a cursed poem, the objects of torture have a very kind of strange quality that the poem sort of has to invoke things in order to, sort of exercise its its like aggression or violence against the person being cursed but what needs to be brought to the fore to do that can take so many different forms you know it can be the literal physical description of the body in pain but it can also be the sort of redescription of a relationship in a way that sort of undoes its kind of assumed intimacy we're talking about intimacy even more than I was expecting. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's something really clever that I can almost say about how, you know, the the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. <laughs> the opposite of a love poem is not a curse poem, it's X. Yeah. I mean I feel like part of what that gets at is that there's something about the poem of address that imposes a lot of structure. I mean, one way of thinking about it is that poems of address have a really interesting relationship to narrative because it one of the ways in which you can have a narrative situation without having a narrative is by constructing a certain kind of relationship. So you can have a poem like I Am Rowing, which at one level feels totally devoid of narrative, but has a sense of narrative situation merely because it's almost impossible to read this barrage of threat and nightmare without making some assumptions about like a certain narrative situation. And the other two cursed poems, I think are sort of playing with that in, in their own ways. They have a little bit more narration. I think daddy most of all, but also there's a lot of narration missing, which is in some ways filled in by the elaboration of the relationship that the poem is built around. And I think very much the same thing happens with, with love poems. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons that, Poems like love and scorn are great topics for pop songs is because it's a very effective way of building out a narrative situation with very little exposition in a highly condensed form. So we got to do love poems soon, I guess. I think love poems are coming.